We are presently looking at a discourse, sermon, that Jesus gave to his disciples. It's known as the Olivet Discourse, primarily because of the location upon which the discourse was made, the Mount of Olives. Jesus has departed from the temple for the last time. In chapter 23 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has some strong words to say to the religious establishment. That segues into a a prophecy where Jesus predicts the, the parameters of his second coming, that there will be, while the Jews will reject Jesus in his first advent and the second as the precursor, they will accept Jesus one day as the Messiah. And in addition to that, Jesus makes this prediction, this prophecy concerning the temple. Now, the Jews had a lot of pride in the temple. There had been a construction project initiated by Herod the Great. It still would be 30 years from this time period before it even be completed. It was a wonder of the ancient world. The Jews took so much pride. They found so much of their identity within the temple. But Jesus, in the last few verses of chapter 23, he says, your house, verse 38, is left to you desolate. It's uninhabitable. Now that creates a response from the disciples as they're leaving the temple, going down the Kidron, making their way up the Mount of Olives. The disciples are like, why are you bagging and knocking and throwing shade at the temple, Jesus? I mean, look at this place. Look how awesome it is. Look at its majesty. Look how ornate. Clearly, you're kind of a little mistaken here. And Jesus doubles down even hard, harder by saying, guys, this thing that you have so much confidence in and pride in and identity tied to, it's going to be so destroyed, so brought to ruin that not one stone will be left upon another. This was not Jesus taking a guess as to what the future held or making, taking a gander. Jesus is issuing here a prophetic statement. He says, verse 2, chapter 24, Assuredly, I say to you, take it to the bank. The old King James would say, verily, verily, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, this is a significant way for Jesus to kind of set the stage for the Olivet Discourse. For the Olivet Discourse, as they make their way to the top of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sits down to take a, bre a breath, and they're looking out over the temple, over the city. The disciples come and they're asking Jesus, verse 3, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? The end of the age. What does the future hold, Jesus? The when, in particular. The why would be helpful. Can you unpack what's coming? Now, Jesus sets the stage for a sermon that is very prophecy-heavy, doing something that's not an accident. In fact, you find this as a bit of a, as a hallmark to most prophetic statements in the Old Testament. There's a whole big section of your Bible known as the books of prophecy. You have the Torah, the first five books, and then you have the histories, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, 
Then you get into the prophets. After you get the poetic books, Psalms and Proverbs, Lamentations, Song of Solomon. The prophets separated into two categories, not by significance, but just by length. You have the major prophets and you have the minor prophets. Major prophets being guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Not so much for their significance, not saying they're better than the others. They're just, their prophecies, if you look in your Bible, are much, much longer. But like there's a whole section, major prophets, minor prophets, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Amos, Joel. Now something within the books of prophecy that is important for you to note, and Jesus emulates this here as a preamble to a prophetic sermon, is Jesus gives a prophecy that could be seen, witnessed, within that generation. Now, we see that in, in the Old Testament. How do you know if a prophet is a prophet from God or a false prophet? Especially if so many of his prophecies are focusing on things that are way out in the future. Well, how can I trust that what you're saying will take place many, 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 many years from now? How can I trust that that's true? How can I take your word for it you got to give me something. And so what would happen is the prophets, they would always give some type of a prophecy that could be seen and fulfilled in the day and age in which the people are hearing it would be privy to. So that you could see that fulfilled and be like, oh my goodness, they got that right. And if they get that right, then I can now trust that they're, they're a true prophet. They're not a false prophet. If I made a prediction for something that, let's say, would happen four generations from now. But I also made a prophecy about something that would happen two weeks from now. Well, if what happens two weeks from now is as I said it was, that would give you more confidence that what I was projecting further out, I'm just not making stuff up. So there's this important tit for tat within prophecy, as you study prophecy, where a prophet will, will, will give something where the audience can see it fulfilled, whether it's the destruction of Jerusalem, whether it was the invasion of a certain army, whether it was the, the judgment of a, of a city. There was always something that, oh man, this Isaiah guy knows what he's talking about. Or Jeremiah. Wow. So Jesus here, he starts as kind of the preamble to this big prophetic discourse, giving a prophecy about the destruction of the temple that, guess what? The majority of the people hearing this particular sermon would actually witness about 30 years later. 70 AD, as exactly as Jesus foretold. The armies of Rome under the, the leadership of Titus Vespasian sat Jerusalem. The temple caught on fire. The gold melted down throughout all the foundation stones to get to the gold, which was the bounty. That's how most Romans would get their wage. They literally had to dismantle the temple one stone off of another. When they were done, the ruin of the temple was absolute and complete to the point that the temple's not there anymore. In fact, it was so complete, we're not 100% sure where the temple exactly was positioned upon the temple mount. So Jesus, he makes this prophecy right before he makes a lot of other prophecies. And it's the fulfillment of the first that should give you confidence that what Jesus is describing in the verses that follow, as crazy, as outlandish, as 
cataclysmic, as big and bold as they seem, can be trusted. Why? Because he already got one right. So this is how it started. Now, their question is, well, what's the sign? They want a sign. What event can we be looking for that tells us the end is near and your coming is nigh? Now, Jesus, in the next several verses, starts laying out a whole lot of other things that parallel what we would call uh, the seal judgments of Revelation 6. Antichrist, war, famine and pestilence, death. But Jesus will describe these as the beginning of sorrows. They want a sign. He's like, hey, you're going to see a lot of things happen. That's not the sign. You'll see them. That's the warm-up. That's the beginning of sorrows. Those are the early days of the pregnancy. But when you start seeing these things happening with more frequency, with greater pain and intensity, you know, well, hey, we need to get to the hospital. The baby is coming. So Jesus gives this whole lead up. Now, I should add again, just in case you weren't with us last Sunday. There are a lot of different uh, positions about the Olivet Discourse really driven upon your greater, I would just say, um, your eschatology, which is the study of end times. If you don't believe in a rapture of the church, if you believe in what's called replacement theology, that the church replaced Israel and God's divine plan, therefore you see the book of Revelation much more as an allegory, if you see so many of these things therefore being accomplished in the sacking of the temple, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, like you're going to read a lot of this with a completely different perspective. But if you let the text speak for itself with the understanding that Matthew is writing to the Hebrew people, he's presenting Jesus as a Hebrew king. He's writing to the Jews. He's writing to the nation of Israel. The church hasn't replaced Israel, if you reject that notion. If you hold, as I do, to a pre-tribulational view of things, with a literal millennial reign of Christ at the end of it. If you hold to the position that as the church, our great hope and expectation is not the second coming of Jesus. I'm excited for it. I don't want to be here for it. Because I know what goes before it. I know the events that will lead up to it being the climax. I know most people won't survive. I don't want to live through any of that. My hope is not the second coming. When people are like, come Lord Jesus. No, 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 no. No, I don't want Jesus to come. I want to go. That's my expectation. That before judgment, we're told in the scriptures that God has not appointed us, his bride, to wrath or tribulation. And what we find in these seven years is wrath. It is God pouring out his wrath on a wicked world and the Hebrew people to bring them to salvation. To usher in then, therefore, a kingdom. My hope is that before all of these things happen, I will be called home. Now, you can disagree with me. And that's fine. When I get raptured, you have fun. If you're like, well, I'm going to go in the middle. Well, great. You go for it. I'm going at the end. Well, that's, that's bold. I'm going to go at the beginning. So you can debate me or disagree with me. That's fine. But I'm going at the beginning. Just getting that out of the way. But as you read through this, as you study this, 
you definitely get the understanding of a Hebrew, Hebrew connotation of this being specific and specified to Israel. A great example of this is when Jesus finally gets to the sign. They want to know the sign. When do we know? Okay, Jesus, we know there's these rebellings, there's the beginning of sorrows, but when, what event should we be looking for? And we, we read in verse 15, and again, we're playing a little catch up to this. But Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, and in case you're curious what the abomination of desolation is, this abominable act that yields desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So there's no need to interpret it. It's very specifically laid out in Daniel 9, Daniel 12. When you see this event, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then, well, there should be some action. So you're wanting a sign. I'll tell you the sign. Daniel's already told it to you. The sign is when this false Messiah, this Antichrist, who goes by many names, the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness, when this final replacement Christ, who ushers in a peace accord with Israel for seven years, again, according to Daniel 9, when he in the middle, at the halfway point, when he enters into the temple and he declares himself to be God, he inhabits the temple. It's a desolation. It's an abomination bigger than a blasphemy. When you see that happen, well, there should be some action. So when you see this man enter into the temple, declare himself to be God, that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Again, Jesus is specific to those in Judea. Hey, those around, around Jerusalem, Judea, you need to run. The moment you see this on CNN, get out of Dodge. Let him who on the housetop, which again, customary even today, the housetops, the roofs, double as patios in the Middle East. Don't even go down. Don't, don't pack a bag. Let whom's in the field. Don't go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant. There's a warning to those who are nursing in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. And again, why would I care as a Gentile Christian that it's on the Sabbath or not? I mean, I, I wouldn't want Georgia to be playing Florida. But other than that, like, I don't care about Saturday. In fact, that works out. I'm not working. And so this is the, the exhortation, the application. Who is Jesus directing the warning to? To Jewish people in which all of these things matter. Flee, run. And then he says, see, I have told you beforehand. If they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out there. Or look, he's in the, the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Verse 29, picking up where we left off last Sunday. Immediately, Jesus says, after the tribulation of those days. So, as I see this in a measure of chronology, we have seal judgments, which is the warm-up act, the beginning of sorrows, laid out in the first part of the sermon. I believe that those things occur within the first three and a half years of a seven-year tribulation period. In the middle, according to Daniel, three and a half years, 42, uh, 42 months, 
the abomination of desolation will happen. Jesus says, flee. And what comes within the next three and a half years, what we might call great tribulation, Jesus begins to describe it. And if you go back, you look at the trumpet judgments, you look at the bowl judgments, you'll find a lot of correlation. Again, Jesus providing kind of a cliff notes to a greater revelation he would provide John many years later. He says, in those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So Jesus is describing here the culmination of the great tribulation and conjuncture with his second coming. Jesus already says, the Son of Man will be coming as lightning from the east to the west. And as it's happening, there's, there's the apocalypse. There are cataclysmic things from the sun to the moon. Go to the bold judgments. Again, if the days weren't shortened, no one would survive. And Jesus comes with an army of heaven riding on horses, which is cool. That means there's horses in heaven. I need to learn how to ride a horse because I plan to be behind Jesus. But Jesus comes down and he puts an end to wickedness. He puts an end to rebellion. The Antichrist, the false prophet, get thrown into hell. The rest are destroyed. We're told that the blood would rise up to the horse's bridle. The elect, those that remain, which are the Jewish people, and I should add, a strong case can be, can be made, other people that become Christians during this time period. It's not as though if you miss the rapture, you're, you're, you're damned. In fact, I think there will be a great awakening and a revival amongst many people. It will be one of those, oh, snap moments. But people will get saved. And again, there will be persecution. The Jewish people, Jesus will gather them from the four winds, speaking of the whole earth. Brings them to Jerusalem. Verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you. This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now, this is a very complicated few verses. In fact, these few verses have, have, have really given any, any side of the argument lots of consternation. And I'll present for you a few of the theories about these verses and then gravitate you towards my personal conviction. There is first the interpretation that, hey, see, all of this is about what happens in 70 AD. Because what does Jesus say? He says, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. I would then argue, we'll go back to what would have taken place. And do you see that happening? Not at all. 
In fact, you, you can't even find a reference or a mention of the abomination of desolation, which is the most significant sign, yet alone the moon darkening and the sun disappearing and all this cataclysmic stuff. And so I, I would disagree that like, okay, how do you interpret this word generation? Well, then what about the fig tree? Now, in its most basic understanding, we can, we can realize what is, Jesus, what is Jesus saying in its most elementary statement. Well, Jesus is saying, hey, how do you know summer's coming? Things start budding, right? Like just nature has a way of letting you know when seasons are, are transitioning one to another. You're wanting to know the signs of things. You're wanting an understanding of how this will all take place. You'll know it. You'll sense it. You'll see it. There'll be something natural about it. As the fig tree buds and you know, hey, summer's here. So will the coming of the Son of Man. You'll know it. Again, very elementary understanding of what Jesus is saying. In the Old Testament, you will find many mentions, and you can build an argument, that the fig tree is symbolic of the state of Israel. That the Hebrew people, the state of Israel, the nation of Israel, that there is an allegory, it, there's a, a type. That when you read about the budding of the fig tree, all throughout the Old Testament, that is a reference to the, the nation of Israel. Now, if you take that, that understanding in context with the generation, well, that can lead you to an interesting theory, and I'll share it. One theory about this, especially from those that maybe come from my camp, pre-tribulationalists, believe in a rapture, is that Jesus is saying here, he's actually predicting, hey, when you see the fig tree bud again, you know it's coming. And that the budding of the fig tree then becomes a second sign. I don't know if you're aware, but following 70 AD, not just was the temple destroyed, but you had the diaspora, you had the Jewish people scattered across the world. And they remained scattered across the world. An amazing thing that the Jewish people living all throughout Europe and parts of Africa, all over the place, were able to still maintain over 2,000 or so years a, a, a unique ethnic, a heritage, culture. Yes, they would become part of society, but they would remain individualistic in their religion. But the Jews were scattered. And yet it could be that what Jesus is saying is that when you see the fig tree... Israel, bud. You know, Israel didn't exist. It was actually referred to as Palestine. Palestia being a reference to the, um, um, the Philistines. The, the word Palestine was, a, was an insult. It was an insult to Hebrews, which is why they named it Palestine. Your arch enemy, the Philistines, Palestina. For years, you have this dynamic. And then in 1948, what happens? Really one of the most improbable things in history. You had a nation that hadn't existed for 2,000 years, since 70 AD, out of nowhere, bud. A branch that was completely dead had blossoms. Now there is a perspective of this where Jesus is saying, when you see Israel return, that generation, 
will by no means pass away till these things happen. Meaning that the generation that sees Israel come back will see these things occur. Rapture, second coming, everything in between. Now, I don't know, 48, that was kind of a long time ago. Which now has kind of become a challenge for some people, right? Well, the Bible says that a generation is 40 years. So the rapture of the church has to happen in 1988. If you're old enough to remember those things, that was the thing. This is why. This, is, this was why it was 88. Well, 88 kind of came and went. Well, so let's start studying what a generation really is in Scripture. It's much broader than 40 years. In fact, you can go all the way up to 100 years, according to the way that God defined a generation back to Abraham and the children of Israel in Egypt. Four generations, 400 years. So that means at least we have till 2048. Seems like a long time. Is it the generation that sees Israel? Is that the generation? Or maybe, and this is kind of where I tend to gravitate, we can take a more elementary understanding of Jesus using the budding of the fig tree and saying, you will sense the seasons. And that generation isn't exactly what we think it means. If you get into the Greek, it's genos, which can just as easily be translated as ethnic. This ethnicity or people group, it's the word that we'll derive genealogy from, genos. And that what then is Jesus saying? Saying this generation, speaking in 32 AD, hey, it's going to get dark, it's going to be ominous, in 70 AD this will happen, but this group of people, the Hebrews, will by no means go away. I still have to deal with you. I still have a future for you. And I think that's probably your better understanding. Heaven and earth will not pass away. The Hebrew people will remain a people group. And it's an amazing miracle. And looking at it and seeing what God did, there's no explanation for it apart from the divine. And then the Hebrew language reemerging, a dead language that reemerged. It's an incredible thing. Verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Let's read the whole section, and then we'll backtrack. That as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? And to be fair, this is complicated. Let's backtrack. Jesus begins the section saying, but of 
that day and hour no one knows, not in the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So, Jesus is going to talk about an event, a day. And he prefaces it by saying that no one knows the day or the hour. Now, right from the jump, this has to be something different than the second coming of Jesus. How so? Well, of the the day and the hour of Jesus' second coming, everyone will know. Everyone. How so? Well, again, go to Daniel 9 and specifically Daniel 12. At the abomination of desolation. Well, first, when you see a signing of a false peace, you know that seven years. You have seven years left. And Daniel tells you how it starts, signing of a false peace. Tells you what happens in the middle, three and a half years, the abomination of desolation. Then he tells you what happens at the end, the second coming of Jesus. When you see the abomination of desolation, you know definitively, according to Daniel 12, everything that happens. You can, set, you can like, take your iCal and put second coming of Jesus. Exactly 42 months, the exact time period, three and a half years. And so, again, Jesus making reference to Daniel's prophecy as the sign, for him then to say here, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only, doesn't even make sense within the context of him giving a sign so that you would know, right? Know what? His second coming. So we can say right from the jump that what Jesus is describing in these verses can't be the second coming because we will all know. We will all be aware. But also notice that we have Again, coming out of the context of Jesus just describing for us the scene of his coming, right? Which was what? Apocalypse. I mean, go back and read what he was just describing. The sign of the Son of Man, he'll appear. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from heaven. The power of heavens will be shaken. This all accompanying the second coming of Jesus But now he's describing what? A different scene. He's saying, of this day, again, changing topics can't be the second coming. Of this day, no one knows, so that has to take out the second coming. Of this day, even the, it'll be like the days of Noah. In fact, Jesus paints a scenario where life will be just fine and dandy. Again, a complete contrast to the environment of the second coming This environment will be like the days of Noah. And then to describe the days of Noah, he said they'll be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the flood comes. So life will be in this scenario on this day that no one knows and no one can pinpoint that will come unexpectedly upon the world. The world will be lulled into its own comfort. Be eating and drinking and marrying and going on as if nothing was happening. And then what happens? Boom, it occurs, just like the flood. So there will be this scene, the scenario of this day that no one knows, that's similar to the flood. And then what does Jesus say? He says there'll be two men in the field. What will happen will be so unexpected, this unique scenario. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Now, There is a play on words that's happening here. Go back a verse. Verse 39, Jesus says, And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So that will be 
the coming of the Son of Man, but this has to be a different coming than the second coming. But note that the flood, that this would bring about, with it, took them all away. The took them all away speaks of a judgment, which is what we saw with the flood. Noah for 120 years is preaching that there's a coming judgment. And he's building a boat. And he's preaching there's a coming judgment. And he's building a boat. And when it was all said and done, Noah preached for 120 years and no one but his family listened to him. No one. Culture was moving merrily on its way, not realizing that judgment was coming. And then rain started to fall. Ruh-roh. But by then it was too late. And they were swept away. All of humanity died. I should add on a side note that Jesus seems to take the Noah story as a global flood and very literally. So just a side note to those that look at the book of Genesis and want to say it's all an allegory or it's figurative. Jesus doesn't see it that way. Jesus saw Noah as a literal person and the flood as an actual thing that destroyed the world except for those that were in the ark. So that's Jesus. You disagree, you can take it up with him. But within this context, you have this, they were all swept away, they were taken away, but then we get to the scenario, there's two men. When this event happens, one will be taken, the other left. Left to what? To be swept away, ultimately. But this word that's, that we find will be taken is a different word entirely. It's a different idea. It actually means to take to yourself. When, when we read of the, the Christmas story, Mary, Joseph. Mary shows up pregnant. Not good news for Joseph, who himself is still a virgin, but betrothed to her. He has kind of a, Mary, what happened? I got knocked up by God. I don't know. God appeared, and Joseph is struggling, right? And the angel of the Lord comes and tells Joseph what? Do not be afraid to take unto yourself Marry your wife. Same word. To take unto yourself. So this, what is being described, is not a taking of judgment, but a taking, it's a good taking, a taking to oneself. Same word we will find, always used about a husband and a wife. It's a beautiful image. So one man, the other taken. Two women will be, one will be taken, the other left. So Jesus' application is, therefore watch. You do not know the hour, but know this. If the master of the house had known when the thief would come, he would have watched, he would have been prepared. Therefore be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. From my perspective, the only prophetic event that comes anywhere close at all to fitting the description of what Jesus is laying out in these verses is the rapture of the church. It can't apply to the second coming for the reasons previously stated. And if you can't apply it to the rapture or you don't feel inclined to, then you have to describe or tell me what he is talking about. Then, What time period is he talking about? What scenario is the application? Well, Zach, you said that this sermon was about the Jewish people. It was. 
Who's the audience? The disciples. Who do become the church, by the way? Like in a couple months, they become the church. And Jesus is a master teacher. In fact, they often use this particular sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, as a type for applicational preaching. Because Jesus is talking about a topic that, let's say, is interesting, but is about another group of people. Kind of what we've been doing, right? We've been looking at things that are going to occur with the Jewish people. Things are going to happen to Israel. Things that we won't be here for. But every master teacher will pivot at the end of his sermon to an application. So Jesus has just gone through this whole thing about, okay, you want to know the sign? This is the preamble. This is the sign. This is what the environment's going to be uh, at my coming. It's going to be terrible. Don't worry, this generation will by no means pass away. So there's now an application. There's hope to the audience, to the Jewish people. Hey, you're going to go through a lot of stuff over the next 2,000 years. My word will, will, will be sure. And then he closes by saying, now let's talk about you guys. None of this is applicable, but let's talk about you guys because there's a different day, a different hope. And again, my interpretation and my way of reading this is that Jesus is closing his sermon with hope for you guys. I'm going to take you before others are taken. <laughs> before others are swept away in judgment, I will remove you using the same word. Again, you go to 1 Thessalonians 4. The trumpet of God, those who are dead in Christ will rise first. Those who remain will be caught up together to be with him in the air. The word caught up. You'll never find the word rapture in your Bible. That word caught up in Greek is raptura, which is where we get the word rapture. Paul writes about a catching away. In fact, Paul says that that catching away has to happen before the Antichrist can ever even present himself, that the one thing with straining the judgment is his church. And so Jesus is like, I will remove you. So watch, be ready. Why? No man knows the day. Do you know that not even Jesus knows the day of the rapture according to scripture? Only the father in heaven, which fits beautifully with the whole imagery of a wedding. Because the groom goes to prepare a place at his father's house, a place for the bride who is back home getting ready. Does she know when the groom is coming? No. Does the groom know? No. He has to get permission from the father that the digs are acceptable. And then the day comes where the father comes to the son and says, it's ready, it's time, go get your bride. And she's every day having this anticipation. She's watching because it could be at any moment. She wants to make sure she's ready. This beautiful imagery, this picture, Jesus says, again, of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but only my Father. Therefore, verse 44, you be ready. Be ready. Watch and be ready. We, we, we have time. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? 
whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all of his goods. And so the context here is us being ready. What does being ready look like? Well, we're about our master's business. That's the application. To be ready, to be watchful, to be faithful, to be a steward of what God has entrusted to each of us, individually and specifically. Verse 48, though, But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master's servant will come on a day when he is not looking for and an hour he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I have no idea what cut him in two means other than to cut him in two. Don't want to be an evil servant. Can we just agree on that one, right? Don't know all the particulars of this, but the idea of getting cut in two, top, bottom, or or right to left, doesn't matter. Terrible. Watch, be ready. And then Jesus will take into chapter 25, he'll give us some parables that reinforce this idea of being ready and being watchful. Now, I want to come back in closing to the environment. So if what Jesus is talking about is the environment by which the rapture of the church occurs, and then we can say soon after, dominoes falling into place that will culminate within the second coming. The scenario, the scene, is that we have, we have a world similar to the days of Noah. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 6 and you read about the days of Noah, it was days of incredible sexual perversion, occultism, demons, perversity, all normal. Because Jesus describes this as this, it was just the way that the world was. They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving into marriage. They were doing their thing. Completely unaware that judgment was coming. I say completely unaware. They weren't completely unaware. Because you have Noah. Who was called by God to be a prophet. For 120 years, Noah preached a message. We don't have his sermons ever recorded. But his sermon, it was method acting. Because he was saying there was a judgment coming and he was building a boat. And everyone thought he was crazy and he was stupid and he was out of his mind. Why? Because it had never rained before. The way that the earth was watered, we're told that a dew came up in the mornings and the evenings and watered the earth. There was probably a canopy of water vapor. It had never rained before. So you had Noah telling everyone, hey guys, God's going to judge this world for its wickedness and its sin. And I'm building a boat. What's a boat? It floats on water. Why do you need, you're on land. 
because it's going to rain. What? Yeah, water's going to come down from the sky, and it's going to rise, and you're going to drown. But I'll be in a boat. None of that. They believed he was out of his mind. Because it had never happened before. As in the days of Noah, we live. I'm not saying the rapture of the church is going to happen in our lifetime. But pet peeve of mine when I listen to Bible teachers is when they, they make the statement, we are the closest generation of any generation ever to the rapture of the church. And it's like, yeah, no kidding. Because we're alive. Hey, guess what? In like an hour, we'll be a little closer. And like next week, we'll be even closer. Because that's how time works. Drives me nuts. We're the closest because we're the ones alive. Do we see a society that emulates Noah, the days of Noah? Man, our culture has progressed in such a way over the last eight years that it's hard to even recognize it. Things that were seen and accepted as just moral truths and, uh, and things that were obvious eight years ago. Is it just me? Or do you look around at the world and think, am I the only sane person left? Am I the only one? Am I the only one that's looking around and is like, we have a Supreme Court justice that can't define what a woman is because she's not a biologist? What? Where are we? And do you feel as a Christian that I'm Noah? And I'm saying judgment's coming. Well, what's going to, we're going to be raptured. <laughs> you're stupid. You're going to what? Yeah, no, there's, you're going to, a trumpet will sound and we will be taken from this place and the flood comes. People look at you like you're an idiot. And you preach a message and you live a life because you're watchful and you're ready and you're obedient to what God has called you to do. And no one knows the day that it comes. You know, I hope I'm wrong. But if, if the rapture of the church occurs in the kind of context we have with Noah, I think there is a lesson we can extrapolate, which is terribly discouraging. But at the flip side, it helps me grapple with some things. We see a complete decline and reversal in how people see religion, tradition, church. A, a lot of things that were already happening within our culture got just fast forwarded with the pandemic. And subsequently coming out of the pandemic, there is a whole ton of people that just disappeared from church. Not this church, but church in general. As in the days of Noah, Noah preached for 120 years. 
And did anybody listen to him? No. But he saved his family. His kids listened to him. His wife listened to him. I don't know, for me, in, in a culture like this, and maybe I'm just sharing this from a pastor's perspective, you know, I don't anticipate. I don't anticipate revival. I'm not sure that's the scenario that will occur. Maybe it happens, and I want to be a part of it, and that would be great. But if it's as in the days of Noah, there'll be a small group of us worn in the world, and no one will listen to a word we have to say. And they will keep going on with their life, eating and drinking and marrying and doing all the things that they want to do, while we're like, destruction. And no one will listen. We have this thing within church, and I know I'm going long. I'll just close with this. It's not good when you say, I'll close with this, and then say that again. You're fine. But, like, there's a pressure within church culture for your church to grow. For your church to grow, for more people to come, for more people to come, for more money to be given, for, for you to get a build, bigger building. And, and, like, and we measure success with growth. That's how we do it. Bigger churches, more successful churches. Smaller churches, not as successful churches. Smaller churches that have been around a long time, not a really good one. Like we equate, we've made an equivalency of number of converts, people to success. And I think that's a lie from hell. And I think this is the most unbiblical way that you can evaluate a church and a ministry. Jeremiah preached for 40 years. And in today's standards, he would have been fired from every church he ever went to. Why? No one ever listened to him. For 40 years, the man preached and had zero converts, zero baptisms. No one listened to him. And then he wept while Jerusalem was burned and sacked, while there was a destruction. Noah, for 120 years, preached and warned and pleaded. All he said was his family. Now, that doesn't remove our responsibility. Hey, we're to be a faithful servant. But like, just what is the expectation? How do we judge success? I judge it by individual lives. My job is to get me and my family to heaven. And anybody that wants to go get on the boat and go with us, it's cool. And that's you guys. And anybody that wants to come through the door and hear the truth, I bloviate. Father, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Enjoy your afternoon. Be filled with God's grace. Walk in his spirit. And like Noah, go warn somebody what's on the horizon.